This podcast was recorded live at the International Conference of Addiction and Associated Disorders. I'm Aaron Huey. These are the stories, the experts. This is the support parents need. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I have mentioned once or twice in just here in London that being uh, being the smartest person in the room is is not a good thing. That's what my dad taught me. Don't be the smartest person in the room. Well, I'm not. I'm I'm sitting across from one of them. Um, Claudia Black has been in this business of treatment, recovery, addiction. Uh, for 40 plus years, um, she's she's kind of like the Ozzy Osbourne of the addiction world. She 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 gets to be one of the people who says that she was here back when. She's seen it go through so many different changes, um, and she's one of the the conceptual founders of the Adult Children of Alcoholics. So we've got the opportunity to ask her anything about where this has been, where this is going, and how she thinks it's going now. So I think that's just how we're gonna start. Claudia, how are you? I'm doing really good. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, Yeah. it's a great show that you produce. Thank you very, very much. It's going quite well, thanks to the parents and the big audience, and of course our network, Mental Health News Radio. Um, But we get people like you on. We're getting bigger and bigger names and bigger guests. So thanks for coming on my little show here. Um, so I want to start with that. How's, how's the industry changed? How's it been and how's it going? Well, first of all, let me say just from what you've said about who your listeners are, that it sound, sounds like you have listeners out there that are really wanting to um, advocate on the part of what's going on in their families Without and what's going a doubt. on in their communities as well. And, uh, and we need to be ever so vigilant. Um, I think that you know just by the nature of uh, our world today and uh, the busyness and the numbers of people that are out there that uh, as we're raising families we we need to know where our kids are we need to know what it is that's going on we need to know what it is that's influencing them that maybe wasn't a part of our growing up life and that we're seeing a lot more anxiety we're seeing a lot more depression we're seeing a lot more uh, addiction and not just substance use disorders but other kinds of addictions such as gaming addictions and screen addictions etc and so when I came into this field and when I came into this field we did not even have the word addiction believe it or not and I don't feel like I'm an old aged person but we had the word alcoholism you worked with alcoholics and you worked with men who were alcoholics and they tended to be older men who were alcoholics and I mean you know that what's so silly about that is this as if addiction didn't affect women for one as if it didn't affect young people but what was true back then is most of the people who actually sought recovery were older were coming into recovery and treatment programs at an older age than today that they are coming in at a much younger age and that's probably for a variety of different reasons but what we're seeing is that kids are getting into trouble and they're moving along in the progression of addiction much more quickly as a combination of the drugs that they're taking today. And when they're coming into treatment, I think what's astounding, I actually oversee a young adult program in Arizona, and what we're seeing is that young people 
I see, I see young people close to dying. I see, one, I see a lot of suicidal ideation, but I see a lot of physically sick young people as a consequence of their drinking, as a consequence of their other drug taking too. And what we don't want to forget, as much as we have a multiplicity of drugs available, that alcohol has always been and actually continues to be the number one drug of choice. Now, today when an addict comes in, uh, typically, I don't find that there is just one drug of choice. There's usually a real combination, and that's certainly true for the young adults that I work with. Dr. Black, is it, is, it, is it fair to say, is it real to say that development hasn't changed, um, children haven't changed, but life has? Or are we looking at developmental changes uh, that are taking place on a biological level different than they used to? Or is the whole thing a fallacy? We've always had kid addicts, and it just hasn't been identified. Well, we certainly have always had kid addicts. Um, when I came into the field back in the early 1970s, there was actually a, a book out um, about young alcoholics, is what it was called. So uh. they certainly have always been there. Um, I think that I think that life is different, and I think, unfortunately, probably every generation says that, but I certainly think technology has been the biggest factor in what is happening today for younger people and for parents concerned about raising their kids. I think that technology, we always say, certainly has some wonderful attributes, but I think what it's doing a lot is, I think that is interfering with the development, the psychological development of children. It's certainly interfering with the social development of children. I think that, that there's I think there's a direct relationship between technology and screen devices with depression and anxiety. One of the things that surprises me about young kids, be they teenagers or young adults who are getting into trouble with alcohol and other drugs, is how emotionally isolated they are and how much self-loathing there is. What I mean self-loathing is self-hate. I'm just, I'm, I'm constantly surprised at, as I say, just the disdain they have for themselves. But one of the things I also want to say is working with families where there's addiction, and particularly when there's young adults or teenagers who are addicted, you know, what those kids, they're so also ashamed. They only want their parents to love them and the reality is we know their parents love them but we know their parents are scared we know their parents are exhausted are, are exhausted they are angry yeah. um, but the kids are so ashamed of their own behavior they think they're not lovable anymore and I always when we do our family work I think the thing that I'm most impacted by is how much love there is in spite of how much exhaustion pain anger and shame there is. When did suicide become an option of sadness? Why is that changed? Because that's one thing I think every parent can agree on is that the suicide option, like I'm sad, I should kill myself. And I remember in, in high school where I graduated in 87, one kid. Yeah. In, in any school, in, in, in Estes Park, Colorado, where I'm from, is a horrid suicide problem. In Boulder, Colorado, the, the liberal enlightenment center of the United States, it's happening in schools and it's happening so much. When did suicide become an option and why? Well, I don't have a definitive answer on when it became an option and why. I do want to go back to that there is a, uh, 
there's certainly some good statistics about the rate has particularly gone up since 2007 and it was 2007 and 8 when social media came into being and it's oh. only expanded since then. From a family dynamic, I think that people really need to take a look at the phenomena that I call emotional abandonment. We often think that families are in trouble when there's, and they are in trouble when there's addiction in the family system, when there's physical abuses and sexual abuses. But I think that what people oftentimes don't recognize is the busyness of families today. There's a lot of emotional abandonment that's going on, and it, the consequence of emotional abandonment is is shame that who I am is not okay and I am not worthy and I do not deserve and that fuels oftentimes that suicidal ideation now back to what is emotional abandonment because you know that's that was going to be my next question jargon. yeah 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 I always say it's one of the definitions for me is when you have to hide a part of who you are in order to be acceptable. So is somebody in a family system where they think that there's a part of who they are is not going to be accepted by the people they need the most, and that's usually mom and dad. Right. Now, that could, um, is it okay in this family to make a mistake? Are there... I want parents to look at the expectations they have of their children. I see a lot of unrealistic expectations. I see a lot of achievement pressure. I see a lot of parents who are over-involved in how well their kids perform and under-involved in other areas of their life. I had a young man the other day who said to me, my mother is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Wow. And I think everywhere is about intrusion, and yeah. I think nowhere is about a lack of connection. And I think intrusion is about the needs of the parent, and I think support is about the needs of a child. And so, I mean, those are just a couple of examples. I mean, another example is for some kids who they are in their sexual orientation, um, that they're going to be rejected for who they are. That would be a more blatant form, a more obvious form of emotional abandonment. Uh, but I think that achievement pressure is critical right now. I think unrealistic expectations is critical. I also see a lot of absentee parenting. Now, I see now I've heard absent parent. What's absentee parenting? Absentee parenting is that and it can occur in a variety of ways uh, when parents are not available to a child in a way that affirms that child's worth and value they may be available in a way that it, it affirms their performance but not their worth and value and they could be physically absent due to work obligations uh, but oftentimes they're emotionally absent they're emotionally absent because of their own depression they're emotionally absent um, because of their own anxiety issues. They're most emotionally absent because uh, they're preoccupied with marital problems that are going on. And I always say, when the needs of the child, you know, when you're raising a child, it's a very child-centered, it needs to be a child-centered form of parenting. Yeah. And that somehow when the child's needs become very secondary in the context of a family. And so if I am married and I'm having problems in this marriage, in this coupleship, I'm going to be more preoccupied with what's going on in my relationship with my husband than the parenting of my children. And therefore the needs of the children are not consistently being met. And the way that child internalizes that message is who they are is not a value. And ultimately, you know, who my needs are not a value and who I am is not a value. So my question is, at the end of every show, I have a mantra that I that I say. I'm sure any family listening could repeat it along with me. I say, parents, you need to take care of yourself first, take care of your adult relationship second, take care of your children third, because in that way we do our best work with our children. Is what you just said 
go against that, or do you feel that handling our ourselves and our adult relationships allows us to take a healthy focus on needs? No, I I would concur with what you're saying. I mean, when you ride on an airplane, they say you know oxygen. if you're going down, you put the oxygen on yourself first, sure. and then you put it on when it's you and a child, then you put it on your child second. And I obviously think that if you're in a relationship, the stronger that relationship is, if the two of you are parents, the better that parenting is. And going now the to reason be. why I've asked this is because when I say to our parents who are coming to the parent weekend and we're doing the the reeducation, the reparenting classes for the parents, and I say you got to take care of yourselves first you got to take care of your adult relationship second your children third the men go like this shaking their heads and yes the women, and the women go like this yeah, no yeah. that if I if I take care of myself then I'm selfish and I mean and there's a real discrepancy with how we're raised men are expected to be self-centered women are expected to be globally centered and yes. if, if men would do differently, we might not be destroying the rainforest and everything. And if women would do differently, they might be in power of the world. And why have we missed the boat on self-care and childcare so desperately? I, I don't know why we've missed the boat um, so desperately. As much as what I know is that I think is lacking, oftentimes in that coupleship, is is really taking the time for emotional intimacy and vulnerability, the willingness in which to be vulnerable in the context of the relationship. And I think that we attach vulnerability to more of a female trait. And so if it's a heterosexual relationship, she gets to be vulnerable, but he gets to be stoic. And that's not what I'm saying. We want, you know, we want the male to be able to be emotionally vulnerable and feel safe and to not feel that his masculinity is being threatened. And Good luck with that. <laughs> well, well, we want to help men challenge man rules and still know yeah. uh, that there's an inner strength that's, uh, that they're carrying with them. I think with women, uh, you know, again, that emotional vulnerability needs to be compensated with a real self-respect uh, in terms of their own uh, voice, um, their ability to ask and expect. Uh, respect and that their needs are met along the way but when it goes back to uh, you know parenting those kids I'm more concerned about when the relationships in trouble one of the things that I'm seeing in my work with kids who are in trouble is so much acrimony among the part of the parents and I see a lot of discord when there's divorce I see acrimonious divorces they're not able to co-parent uh, co-parent at all and ever put that child's needs and in, in front of uh, you know their need to be angry with each other uh, so one so I'm gonna just go back to yeah I think you need to emotionally take care of yourself but not at the price that your kids needs aren't aren't being acknowledged along the way is okay with it with with uh, adult children of alcoholics one of the things that I'm going to assume is something that you just started alluding to, which is, you know, if something's going on with with the with the parents and there's a divorce, and it's not going well in the divorce, that that baggage is going to be passed on down to the kids. Uh, and the last podcast I was doing about bullying, so much of the outrageous reaction about your own child being bullied, and it certainly needs to be handled comes from the fact that the parent was bullied and it was never reconciled. That that these relationships that we're having are relationships with our uh, uh, alcoholic parents 
How many people in treatment are just carrying around the luggage of their parents? Probably, probably the majority of people who end up in an addiction treatment program are carrying around the baggage of their parents. And, and, and whether or not you know, you're an addict, whether or not you're in treatment, I think that you know, as parents, you're going to want to take a look at your own family of origin issues. Where are your strengths? Yeah. What did you take that you value in the way you were raised that you want to perpetuate with your children? What was occurring in that family you were raised that in fact was painful, was hurtful? And to know that it's very likely that you're going to repeat a lot of that unless you have specifically addressed that. This and when I say address that, not just have insight, gee, I don't want to do what my parents did. That's right. not enough. No, no. I mean to emotionally address how painful that was, how hurtful it was, to really do some grief work around what was so hurtful in that family in which you were raised. I always say with adult children, we need to explore the past. You, what I mean by that is to own what it is that happened versus to say, well, they did the best they could. Well, of course they did the best they could, but it still could have been very hurtful and you still could wow. have not had your needs That's met. Powerful. So you need to explore the past. You need to recognize how does that past impact who I am today? I can guarantee you that how you were raised is impacting who you are as a parent. It's impacting how you are in a relationship. It's impacting really how you, you feel about yourself. So how does that past impact who I am today? What are the beliefs that I internalized in my growing up years? And does that belief support me in the way I want to parent today or does it hurt me? Beliefs such as it's not okay to take a risk. If you right. do that, you know, nobody's ever going to, you know, move out of that little square right, box. Right, right, right. Um, beliefs such as it's not okay to say no and you're not going to provide structure for your children. Uh, beliefs that it's not okay to ask for help. So you need to take a look at what are the beliefs you internalized because you're probably still acting on them and then to reframe those beliefs. And then you need to take a look at skills. Oftentimes we did not learn some basic skills in our original family. Maybe I didn't learn how to problem solve, to see options that could be available to me. Maybe I didn't learn how to listen. Maybe I didn't learn how to ask for help. Maybe I didn't learn how to negotiate. So in identifying that, then that gives you a sense of direction as to what you need to go out and learn to do. You know, I, my, my wife has said, and I, and I love this saying, you know, with, uh, with regards to how you were parented, what your parents did or didn't do, that we're, we're gonna grow up and repeat, or we're gonna reject and go 180 degrees. And when I said that, my wife said, 180 degrees of sick is still sick. And it's learning how to find that healthy middle. I grew up in a family that had a high level of emotional intelligence. My mom did a really good job. My dad was very affectionate and, and very intimate with my mom um, and, and with me and my brothers, lots of hugs and kisses and hand-holding and tears when the dog died. And, and it was a good, healthy environment. Didn't stop the, the, the biological experience of being an addict myself and going into that thing and having an absent biological father that created all kinds of So I, we still have this thing. But a lot of what you're saying brings us back to that old fashion sit on the couch and tell me about your mother. And I know because so much of my audience are moms 
it's like at, at some point, do they catch a break? Yeah. That <laughs> Let me tell you, when I work with these young adults, they love their moms. Of course we do. <laughs> so moms, it's not about love. Um, and uh, and I, see, I see a lot of father hunger, by the way. Oh. And the father wounds. The father it, wounds are great. Oh my God! But I see a lot of mother enmeshment. The more there's father hunger, the more mothers are enmeshed with their kids mm. in more of a peer-like basis. I think one of the be most important things that parents can do is remember that you're a parent and you're not their friend. Um, they're supposed to have friends that are their peers, that developmentally are going through, you know, the similar stages at the same time. You can certainly go out and play with your kids and have a great time with them, but when it really comes down to it, it's your job to provide safety, to nurture, to support, and to also provide structure and to help them recognize choices and consequences and then to follow through with consequences when poor decisions are made. Is it getting and more complicated the more we're finding out about brain chemistry, brain development, emotional intelligence? It's, it seems that the rules get more and more finite. And it not shouldn't be more complicated for the parent. Um, I think that the more we find out about brain neurochemistry and understand brain development, it might help us understand why they need structure and not to be sort of moved into the adult freedom prematurely. You know, we give a lot of freedoms today to our 14, 15, 16 year old children and they don't have the brain capacity. They're far too impulsive. Um, and right. that's that's not because you haven't raised them well, that's because the brain hasn't developed. And that they're not able to make really good decisions for themselves consistently, easily until they're in their earlier 20s. Dr. Black, I've used up your time that you had available to me. I'd love to have you on for a longer show. May I contact you Please. at a later date? Thank Absolutely. you, I will. Give some, give people some contact information for your organization. How can they find you? Uh, get in touch, get some of your books. How can okay. people get yeah. more Claudia you can Black? Get all of my books on Amazon Great. and or ClaudiaBlack.com is my website, ClaudiaBlack.com, and I have the Claudia Black Center at the Meadows, the Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona treatment facility. Thank you so much, Dr. Black. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thanks for the plug, letting me plug. Oh, of course, of course. So, and thank, sorry this podcast has been a production of the International Conference of Addiction and Associated Disorders and Mental Health News Radio Network, always sponsored by Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. You can contact Fire Mountain at 303-443-3343, extension 204, to take a free assessment to see if your child needs residential care. Thank you, parents, for making Beyond Risk and Back the number one podcast in Colorado, Australia number three in Canada, and taking on Great Britain by storm. All my love to all the listeners, and remember, parents, take care of yourselves first, take care of your adult relationships second, and take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. You can reach me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.